Hello and welcome to Philosophy Voice, a podcast from the Center for Ethics at the University of Pardubice, Czech Republic. In this episode of Philosophy Voice, Ole Lagerspitz and Silvia Capriola Panitza, the two current Marie Sklodowska Curie Fellows at the Center for Ethics, discuss their EU-funded projects, the value of carrying them out at the center, and the similarities between their philosophical interests. Welcome everyone again to this installment of Philosophy Voice. Uh, my name is Olli Lagerspets, and here with me today, Silvia Panitza. Hi Olli, my name is Silvia Caprioglio Panitza. I am a Marie Curie Fellow at the Centre, just like yourself. So we thought that today we would have a conversation between the two of us to talk a little bit about our projects, which have some areas of overlap, and why we're here at the Centre for Ethics. Oli, why did you choose the Center for Ethics for your project? The Marie Curie Fellowship uh, implies that you should go somewhere else and and pursue your further research. And considering my particular orientation in philosophy, I would actually say uh, there aren't that many places to go. But um, I was uh, familiar with the uh, Pardovice Center of Ethics from before. So I knew this would be a continual environment. Now, uh, the most important fact here, why I made this choice, is that um, there's some some uh, knowledge here, some some expertise here on, uh, especially the uh, the work uh, of one of the philosophers I'm interested in, uh, Peter Winch, and also his background in Wittgenstein is also um, central uh, for this project. Uh, there's also some uh, knowledge of, of uh, the other philosopher uh, I've uh, been looking at, uh, namely R.G. Collingwood. So, so I would say this is a congenial environment, first of all, in the sense that the expertise is there, and, and, and then uh, also because I uh, like um, the kind of connections they make here between ethics and other branches of philosophy. But, but what about you, Sylvia? Yes, I also chose the Center for Ethics because of its expertise, but also because of its approach. As you were saying, Oli, Marie mm. Skłodowska, your reactions require us to move to a country where you haven't lived before. Uh, so there is this important element of mobility involved, which I think uh, is both important philosophically, but also for one's life experience, uh, because what it requires of us is to experience the culture of another country and foster collaborations between European countries, uh, which has always been very important for me, having traveled around different countries and universities. And uh, this part of Europe is uh, has its own very specific, long, rich historical culture, which I think was very valuable to add. But the Center for Ethics specifically is, for me, a unique environment where you have an international team of researchers, all of them focused on finding slightly different ways of doing ethics from the mainstream, Uh, also with a lot strong focus on moral psychology, which is important for my project. And I also share the areas of concrete concern that people from the center like to work on, such as current political issues, populism, climate change, uh, immigration, and animal ethics. 
So, Oli, shall we start by talking a little bit about your project specifically? Yeah, right. So your project is called Philosophy as Cultural Self-Knowledge, R.G. Collingwood, Peter Winch and the Human Sciences. Who were R.G. Collingwood and Peter Winch and why are you writing about them? Yeah, I mentioned them already. Now, R.G. Collingwood and Peter Winch were two British philosophers of the 20th century. So Collingwood died in 1942 and Winch died in 1997. Both were mostly known for their contributions to the philosophy of the human sciences. Uh, Collingwood's book, the, uh, the Idea of History, was published posthumously in 1946, and Winch's The Idea of a Social Science was published in 1958, in other words, when he was still quite a young man. Um, they were quite, uh, these books were quite important in the debate then, and they still are. Both would propose each in their own way that the humanities and social sciences are quite different from natural science um, because they involve a kind of understanding from the inside of the phenomena they are looking at. So in, let's say, physics, a nuclear physicist who looks at elementary particles will not be asking the particles why they behave in one way and not the other. But in history and social science, of course, you must really start with those questions. Uh, you must ask those questions concerning the people you are investigating. So it's not just that you must ask these questions because you'd miss essential information otherwise. But more radically, Collingwood and Winch would say that the idea of meaningful agency is constitutive of any knowledge of history and society. In other words, if you do history and social science at all, you will accept as your starting point that your inquiry has a certain form, namely the form where you look for reasons that people themselves have for their actions. So uh, we can understand uh, agents in the past or agents in um, other situations than our own, because we can actually think the same thoughts as they were thinking. So we should figure out what questions or problems they were facing. In other words, to uh, understand action is very much about looking for logical connections between things, not causal connections in the sense of, uh, you know, one thing pushing another, uh, pushing or pulling at another and making things happen, but, but rather looking at how uh, ideas hang together in the minds of the people who, 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 uh, whose actions we are looking at. So this means that we understand what makes sense to others, and this is because we understand how those things would, would make sense to us. So we analyze culture as it were from the inside and not just from the outside. Yes, and this connects with the other thing that you mentioned in the project title, cultural self-knowledge. Can you tell me a bit about that? Why do you think it's relevant today? Yeah, there are, there are two major things, I think. Uh, one is that these views I just described are still controversial to some extent. You often still hear complaints that the human sciences haven't found their unifying grand theory and then that, that, they should, uh, that they should turn to things like brain science or evolutionary theory or something else to find that grand theory. The other thing which I think is more interesting philosophically is this, uh, both Collingwood and Winch obviously wrote loads of other things in philosophy besides uh, the question of the human sciences. So my idea here is that you don't really 
see the full import of their arguments even here, unless you look at the other stuff and the general vision of uh, philosophy that they were putting forward. Because they had an underlying idea of what knowledge is and what logic is and what it means to make meaningful statements in language. And all this goes into the background of what they were saying about um, the human sciences specifically. One thing here is that uh, philosophy too is a kind of exercise in human cultural self-knowledge where you must pay attention to the cultural context. So philosophy is not universal or eternal, <clears throat> but it concerns our possibilities to gain a deeper understanding in the here and now, in the, in the context of uh, the cultures where we live. Uh, and now I think this common philosophical backdrop that Winch and Collingwood shared is much easier to see today than it was a few decades ago, because there's now much more material available from these two thinkers. Winch, of course, as I said, was a young man in 1958, so he wrote a lot of new stuff after that time. And on the other hand, starting with the 1990s, there's been a steady flow of new material uh, from Collingwood coming out. Um, he was a copious writer, and there's a lot of posthumous material which is now gradually being published. And in your project, you also paid visits to archives in Oxford and London to look at unpublished material by Collingwood and Winch. What did you find? Uh, that's right, yes. Yes, in May this year, uh, my friend and colleague um, Jonas Halskog and I paid a, first, paid a visit first uh, to the Collingwood archives in Oxford and then the next week I went to the Winch uh, collection in London. This was also part of my EU project and you know, was uh, planned in the original plan. Uh, there's still a lot of unpublished and publishable stuff in both archives. And I mean, there are people, <coughs> people who, who are dealing with, <coughs> with the publishing and publication results so, uh, and um, decisions, so I'm not, you know, I'm not uh, directly involved. Uh, I did find some additional stuff in the Winch collection, which confirms that Winch read Collingwood carefully. So that was direct influence. Um, by the way, perhaps I should correct myself. I am to some extent involved in public publishing the Winch stuff, but there are others who are more involved, especially Michael Campbell, who was earlier here in part of it. Okay, that was direct influence to some extent, but, but what really interested me here was that these two thinkers wrote about two topics and had a lot of commonalities there. I looked at what they wrote about the status of logic and meaningful language, and then how that uh, connects to questions about philosophical realism and uh, idealism. Uh, Collingwood had views on logic which developed over time. A constant feature there was the emphasis on context. You don't really say anything meaningful simply by putting together a sentence. Rather, what you say, your sentence must connect to something. Collingwood put this by saying that every meaningful sentence must be an answer to a question. To understand what someone is saying is to see how it would be an answer to a question that they were asking or someone might talk. Uh, this, mean that, this would mean that uh, knowledge is not something that we just cobbled together from discrete pieces of information. Knowledge is an on ongoing 
inquires, or it's part of that inquiry. So knowledge is, is you know, not, <clears throat> not um, a collection of information. Now, Winch had very similar views. In the archives, he also has stuff on argument and persuasion. While Collingwood concentrated on the role of logic in history and scientific research, um, Winch connected questions of logic with ethics. And of course, here the part of its center comes in again. Um, if you want to understand an argument, he said, it's not enough that you should see in the abstract that A follows uh, from B, or A leads to B, B follows from A. Uh, you must also see why the argument would be relevant to anyone. You have to consider whether something is a real argument and not just a kind of verbal exercise. Otherwise, if someone tells you that uh, B follows from A, you might just answer, why should I care? Uh, Winch pointed out that an argument is primarily something that someone puts forward in their own name because they mean it and believe it. And that's where ethics comes in, of course. An important aspect of your project, as you say, is looking at the role of philosophy among the sciences. Of course, philosophy has a long history of being originally not clearly distinct from the sciences, including natural sciences. So what role exactly do you think philosophy has now in relation to science? And what role do you think it should have? Yeah, I mean, philosophy is not um, one of the sciences, uh, properly speaking, but I would say it's rather what Collingwood called a second order inquiry. So it is inquiry about inquiry. It's not about, you know, what the truth is, but, but it concerns the question of what it means to have access to truth. Um, in other words, the question how the search for truth plays out in different areas of action and inquiry. So you can have scientific truth, you can have, have historical truth or religious truth or ethical truth and so on. But specifically, what truth those truths will be, if any, is not the concern for philosophy directly, I'd say. Uh, it's not the business of philosophy to demonstrate, let's say, that God exists or doesn't exist. But it should be a, a, a task for philosophy to try to make clear what kind of a question this is. So the philosophical question is, what conditions must be fulfilled if we are even to start thinking about these questions? Let's say, what's the place of nature, or the place of the past, or, or the place of the supernatural or ethical meaning in human life? Um, well, and what kinds of places can they have? So these are a kind of uh, meta, meta questions or, or uh, second order questions, and they are, they are um, the domain of philosophy, I would say. Yeah, so your project engages with abstract, very general question, but at the same time, it's also deeply engaged with cultural debates, which are currently also political ones. So I wonder if a natural development uh, of your project is for you to offer a way to bring philosophy into public discourse more. Currently, philosophers are not often present in mainstream public debate. Um, so I wonder from your perspective, having studied these issues, why do you think that's the case? And if philosophers were to be more included, how would you negotiate the role of philosophy in public debate? And for example, the tension between the detailed and specialized nature of philosophy and the necessity for it to be accessible, on the other hand? 
I'm not sure it's true that um, philosophers are generally less visible than the other academics are. After all, there are uh, rather few few professional philosophers in the world. And of course, a lot of our time is taken up by uh, teaching and research. And there are, of course, some some well-known public philosophers, uh, regardless of what you'd otherwise think of them, but people like Slavoj Žižek, Martin Usbam, and Peter Singer. So you find lots of uh, philosophy programs on YouTube, for instance. On the other hand, um, there would certainly be even more more demand for philosophy in the public sphere. Uh, one thing that strikes me are these scientists like Stephen Hawking, Richard Dawkins, and earlier people like Einstein, who made their academic contributions in science, but who then went on to express philosophical opinions left and right. And very often it was quite an old-fashioned and ordinary philosophy, but people like to hear them talking because these are questions that interest people deeply. And I would also say that the humanities in general uh, are in a different position than science to actually go out to people because uh, the humanities concern themselves about things which are you know, human and close to human. Uh, I mean, we, we, we don't justify ourselves by, by showing up uh, applications or gadgets, but, but rather by creating the conditions f- for a deep and understanding of, of what our society is about and a better way to negotiate oneself, uh, to, to, to find one's way about in, in society and culture. So in that, in that sense, I would say the humanities actually have, have a, a responsibility to, to, uh, to go to the general public, uh, I think, differently than, than um, the sciences would do. But anyway, I don't think that the answer is simply that philosophers should latch on to every debate that there is in the public agenda, because we should have the stamina to create our own agenda uh, and not go along with the crowd. For instance, today, uh, I think today, uh, people, of course, pay much attention to the Ukraine war, and, and rightly so. But I don't think philosophers should now start a lot of research projects specifically on the philosophy of the war uh, in in Ukraine, even if someone perhaps should do that too. Um, but on the other hand, the philosophy of history is incredibly relevant here. Uh, because if you look at the debate, historical arguments and justifications just uh, crop out, uh, crop up left and right. I mean, that's this complete uh, memory politics uh, that, that we just uh, find everywhere. Uh, people mobilizing history as, as as a war resource, basically, uh, and as uh, you know, his, as, as historian Timothy Snyder recently said, referring to Ukraine and Russia, we need more history and less memory. Um, I mean, this is his criti- critical comment on, on this the mobilization of history as memory politics. And I think a pi- final point here is this. And I think this point shows uh, the relevance of the humanities. If you look at dictatorships, usually in those countries, there is quite a severe repression of philosophy and the humanities and, and the social sciences, while they still allow a lot of leeway for science and technology. So this shows, I think, that the human sciences are relevant to people in quite a different way, because they shape our collective self-understanding. And of course, in the dictatorship, 
that's not allowed to happen because the government wants to monopolize the, the agenda. So this just goes to show how incredibly important uh, the humanities would be for a functioning civil society. Yeah, of course. Yeah. So just to conclude this part of our conversation, I wanted to ask you what other paths or new topics do you think that your project has opened up after this one year? Well, first of all, because this is this is an ongoing uh, research project, so I'll, I'll be carrying on um, the things I'm working on now, also next year after my, my scholarship has ended. Um, and as you, you obviously see, there are lots of avenues for further development. But I think the main main thing for me in the in the long run or the middle middle uh, run would be to to go beyond just scholarship on these two thinkers and carry on just uh, with the questions they were addressing, not merely spelling out what they have said, but but continuing on that trajectory of thought on my own independently of them. And I hope you do. Thank you, Ali. Yeah. Well, what about you, Sylvia, then? I mean, the title of your project is Moral Impossibility, uh, which sounds strange, perhaps. Um, moral impossibility. When we think of impossibility, we usually think of physical impossibility, but not of impossibility in ethics. If I want to go to the mailbox around the corner, I can't fly there, I must walk. But ethics seems to be about things that in some sense, at least, I can do, but then they could be impossible. So is that really a meaning of impossibility in ethics? Yeah, I mean, this is a question that I need to dig deep into because it's sometimes met with some skepticism, as you say. And the project's title as a whole is Moral Impossibility, Rethinking Choice and Conflict, which shows that through moral impossibility, I think we can also look at a different role of morality as such, including the idea of choice. And I think these are exciting times for ethics, precisely because there are increasingly new ways in academic philosophy, not just to solve problems, but to think about ethics as such, what it is and what it should do. I think a bit like what you do with philosophy, rethinking the role of it and the scope of it. And the model of ethics as making a choice among a number of possibilities that are just there, available to you and everyone else, is one model. And it's currently the traditional one, especially in the analytic tradition in which I'm mostly working, but it's not the only model. And Iris Murdoch, a philosopher who's very dear to me, described this model quite brilliantly as going to a shop, surveying the items, and then making a decision about what to buy. And as Murdoch stresses, that's not the only way in which moral thinking and living works. Sometimes it's like that, but I think more often it's not like that. Murdoch thought that we don't always live in the same world. This is what she said. And she meant that our perception of facts, but also which facts make it into our field of vision, their salience and their role in our choices is not determined impersonally and empirically. So that means that moral thinking does not only operate at the level of choices and of ought and should, but also at the level of determining the meaning of the courses of action and importantly for me, among which possibilities we can choose. So there is a sense in which a moral impossibility needs to be perceived as such by the agent or moral subject. And in this sense, moral impossibilities refer to everything that does not make it into a range of perceived possibilities, and that does not make it into that range for moral reasons. 
And if you think about that, such restriction of possibilities happens all the time. We never have all the empirically available possibilities. There is always some empirically available possibility that we do not consider for reasons that are moral. And so I think it's important to know why some possibilities are part of a range of options and which ones are not. So there are some courses of actions that lie outside of range of possibilities as well. That does not make the impossible in the empirical or logical sense, but it means we cannot choose them. Sometimes, on the other hand, we don't even think about these possibilities. I call this the category of the unconceived. Sometimes we think about those possibilities in an abstract way, but we cannot take them seriously as possibilities. And I think that's what we can call the unthinkable. And sometimes we cannot act to realize those possibilities. And that's known as moral incapacity. And that's perhaps closer to the traditional meaning of impossibility, because you experience an obstacle to performing the action that feels as strong as a physically insurmountable obstacle, or even stronger. Yeah, here I'm actually reminded of, of, of this concept of temptation. In other words, there's this idea that in the abstract, as it were, you, you might think there are reasons for you to do something, but you know it's it's wrong. I mean, you might have reasons in the abstract to kill someone, but but perhaps you are not even tempted. Someone else might tempt. Maybe uh, someone else might be tempted, and a third person uh, might actually do it. Yeah, there are many ways in which. Uh, possibilities can appear in our minds and there are various degrees of realizability and concreteness. So, for example, you may not consider doing something, you may not think about it, you may think about it but not really think you can do it, you may try and fail to do it. So, temptation is interesting here because it shows that something can come into our minds as a possibility but then it does depend on what we do with that possibility. So, to some extent, this is clearly up to us, and to some extent, it feels as if there is something outside of us, which could be the force of value or of moral commitments, that feels as if puts an obstacle to our very choices. Interesting. How did you come to think of this topic? Well, it actually started with the other research line that I care about, a more applied one, if you like, which is animal ethics. And at the time, which was probably three or four years ago at least, uh, I was working in a medical school uh, in Norwich, and I was part of a research ethics committee evaluating experiments done on non-human animals. And then, during many harrowing meetings, I was struck by how often the language of necessity and impossibility was used for what to me were plainly choices, and for me also wrong choices. And there wasn't much actual ethical debates in those meetings, unfortunately. And most of the discussion tended to concentrate on how to minimize the duration and the intensity of the pain of these animals and the number of animals used. So concrete empirical considerations. And I was never truly able to engage the other members in a discussion about whether they were justified in doing these things to these animals. Partly they found the young philosopher in the group a bother, and partly I realized that for them, not experimenting on animals was not a possibility that they'd taken seriously or even thought about. And one way in which they expressed this thought, perhaps not even realizing the import of it, was by saying that it was necessary to use and kill animals. One of them even said to me, terminating them, this is the word that they use instead of killing, is just what we do. You should just know that. Stop asking these silly questions. 
So, of course, when they said it was impossible not to do it, and it was necessary to do it, there was no physical or logical impossibility there. So thinking about necessity and impossibility could only become intelligible if we fill in the story by A, saying that you need to have some goal, and here the goal is finding out some facts about the human body in order to prevent or cure disease, and that this goal overrides other considerations, and B, that you cannot or will not take seriously other options which would be even more effective such as performing these experiments on unconsenting humans, mm -hmm. which is scientifically mm -hmm. clearly more effective. Mm -hmm. But these are both moral questions. And the second one brings in precisely the kind of moral impossibility that I think should also apply in relation to inflicting mm -hmm. pain and killing other animals. So in this context, I realized that if we want to have debates about these and other very important fundamental issues and really understand each other, we need to disclose these hidden assumptions and commitments that go to the very heart of morality through what we take as possible. And I think if we do that, we will be more truthful, but also will give us a better chance of finding real common ground when we debate these issues. Right. Yeah. I'm reminded of the fact that Winch also wrote uh, moral philosophy, so we, we actually have some common ground here. Uh, several times, Winch suggested something a bit similar to what you are saying now. Uh, I mean, he thinks we should approach ethical di ethical dilemmas from the inside, as it were, as I said. Uh, um, so, so you should um, think, uh, look at the thinking of those people who are faced with those dilemmas or decisions. And there, there of course, you get exactly the question: What kinds of uh, alternatives are they considering? Uh, what what kinds of alternatives uh, strike them as Possible or impossible. Um, so, um, <coughs> which has this essay on the on the Good Samaritan uh, from from the Gospels? The Samaritan found this man lying in a ditch, and so he rescued him. And Winch then imagines <coughs> the Samaritan telling himself, "I just can't leave him. I ca I just can't leave him there to die." So this looks like a moral impossibility that he was facing. Yeah, that's exactly right. And it's interesting that both Peter Winch and Simon Vale, who was, of course, very important for him, take this very example as a case of moral impossibility or the other side of that, which is practical necessity, a sense of having to do something, having no other choice but to help. Uh, vale calls this obedience. And Winch, I think, uses the phrase moral impossibility. And when he's discussing this situation, he makes, I think, a marvelous point, which turns conventional thinking on its head, saying that physical differences here would have been irrelevant to explain what is happening. And he writes something like this. I have a loose quote. He says that when the Samaritan says, I just can't leave him here to die, his companion could say, of course you can. You don't have a broken leg, do you? <laughs> right. And Wench says, well, if he replied like that, he would not be meeting the Samaritan's point but making a tasteless joke. And that would show precisely the irrelevance of impossibility in the physical context and not in the moral one. So the idea that Winch is suggesting here is also a broader one, namely that an account of a moral situation in merely naturalistic terms would miss the point of what that situation actually is. Mm. So we're coming back to the initial discussion and Murdoch's idea of alternatives to the conventional moral outlook. And I think Winch is also telling us that we cannot rely solely on naturalistic descriptions to understand moral issues and what they are about. And this is also what uh, another 
very important philosopher for me, who is Cora Diamond, has called anti-dictationism of the natural science to the humanities. The idea that natural sciences are of great importance and they interact with morality in meaningful ways, but that doesn't have to be the way of fixing what is possible and what is there. And then ethics comes and evaluates. I think there is more fundamental work for ethics to do. And which comes back to this point in another essay, also the universalizability of moral mm. judgments, when he talks about Melville's Billy Butt and how Captain Veer saw no other option but to condemn Billy Butt to death, whereas Winch himself would have found it impossible to do so. And he does oh, use this language of impossibility. So here we have also another idea of how moral impossibilities can be perceived differently by different people in different contexts and different times. And that what is impossible for me may not be impossible for you and vice versa. Yeah, interesting, interesting to find these connections. Uh, but then, okay, you said what's impossible for me may not be impossible for you and vice versa. Now, now how do you know if the impossibility that you are perceiving is a good one or a bad one, as it were. In other words, can't you just be mistaken about what kinds of things ought to be morally possible or impossible? Now, what about this? <clears throat> Someone like, let's say, Putin is telling himself and telling everyone else that he really had no other choice but to invade Ukraine. But everyone else, or let's say uh, reasonable people, would say he made a choice. So is there a risk here that the talk about moral impossibility just turns into a kind of self, self-justifying jargon? You, you do terrible things and then you just say uh, you had no choice here, that it was impossible to do anything else. Yes, of course it's possible and we can always misuse moral language. Uh, but that's true of the language of impossibility as it's true of the language of ought and should. Mm. And I think there are different explanations that we can invoke here if we want to make sense of why somebody would invoke this specific kind of language. So on the one hand, even if we take someone's avowed impossibility prima facie at face value, there's always the possibility that one can be deceived about one's own moral perceptions and motivations. And that's true of all moral phenomena. Uh, think about, for example, the problem of a crazy or weakness of will. One way to explain it would be to say that I don't really think that the best thing to do overall is what I say I should do, but I end up not doing. Perhaps I was mistaken about my own overall judgment, and that happens quite often. Uh, but also sometimes, and I think this is closer to what is happening with Putin, the language of impossibility can be used as a rhetor rhetorical tool. I don't know how self-deceived Putin is, but if he's not entirely blind to his own motives, this may be what is going on in this case. A moral impossibility, of course, is not just a stronger way of explaining an ought not. It takes us to a different level of morality. And that can make an impression and can be used consciously, but it crumbles when subject to scrutiny. And this kind of scrutiny can go something like this. Uh, and here I would like to use some of my current research or what I'm trying to find out about moral impossibility. So here, for example, we can start with what I believe to be the main driver of moral impossibility, which is a fundamental commitment to a specific value. So for instance, if I am committed to the value of friendship with somebody, I will be unable to perform actions that will significantly erode that friendship. So the either side of moral impossibility, I think, is the value that we need to preserve. 
And now we can ask, what value is Putin trying to preserve, which gives him no choice but to invade Ukraine, destroy the country and slaughter its inhabitants? Is there any value that can be preserved by this action and that would be destroyed if he refrained from that action? I think it's clear from asking these questions that there cannot be. I mean, of course, he can say that there is, and that's the value of protecting Russian people from Ukrainian attacks. And here we can look at the empirical facts and say, well, it's just not true. Mm. Okay, this was interesting, illuminating. I think there's uh, time for one more question. Uh, What more do you think will be left for you to do after you complete this project in terms of studying moral impossibility? Yeah, quite a lot. I feel that two years is not nearly enough um, Mm. to do everything that I wanted to do. It never is. No, it never is. Um, So I I think this is a project that can have a very long life uh, because it can develop on both the theoretical and the abstract level. So on the theoretical level, I would like to continue working on understanding the phenomenon of moral impossibility, the psychology of it. And in both cases, I can see useful collaborations with other disciplines that I would like to engage in. On the one hand, psychology could help uh, me to think more about uh, how people actually think about moral impossibilities, Uh, whereas philosophically sometimes we have to ground our reflections on uh, our phenomenology and uh, other books and other reflections. So more about uh, what drives it, how do we explain it, how do we understand it, because as I mentioned at the beginning, there are different forms of moral impossibility, so how do we hold them together? What kind of role can they have for ethics overall? How can they help us thinking about uh, ethics as a discipline and this phenomenon? But on the other hand, one of the motivations for this project is to help us understand conflict through moral impossibility, Mm. uh, because it's, uh, it's my belief that Sometimes conflicts that are explained by disagreement actually should be explained by appealing to moral impossibility and working through that lens. And here I can see collaborations with sociology and anthropologists, for example, to understand what kind of moral impossibilities different cultures have, what are they correlated with, how do when do they change uh, historically and contextually and geographically. But I think in both cases, uh, in collaborations with all of these disciplines, what would be very good to do is to design the empirical parts together as well, because there seems to be a bias for the model of choice, even in psychology and sociology. Uh, This is work, for example, that uh, sociologist Gabriel Abend has done by pointing out the overuse of the model of choice. So even in these other disciplines, redesigning experiments by making room for the language of I can't or I must and of impossibility and necessity could give us some very interesting results that then as a philosopher I could work on. So a lot to do um, after the project ends. It strikes me when you describe this, it strikes me that um, this is really centrally connected to this idea of of, uh, philosophy and and the humanities generally uh, as as a quest for, for cultural self-understanding. Because the question is, now, have, have we given the notion of, of choice the right place in, in our descriptions of, of the life of, of a community and the life of, of an individual? Yes, and perhaps we've given too big a place to the language of choice, yeah, partly precisely. because of a... Yeah. I mean, have, have we left something else out? And, and clearly we have. And, and so 
you know, it's it's not not just a question of you know uh, describing or developing a model of ethics, but it's also a question of describing the actual lives which we have and, of course, which are you know part of the culture yes. or, uh, where we live. And and I guess in in a way, this is a kind of if you like meta ethical question in 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 the sense that it is about um, the kind of background that you will need for any kind of um, ethical choice and ethical um, action agency generally. Yes, mm. and I think as you stress in your project, there are cultural, contextual, political uh, environments which make it easier for us to use the language of choice as opposed to impossibility. Uh, and then we think that we're just doing ethics in a way that's objective and abstract, whereas in fact we are deeply influenced by this context in which we are embedded and we need to be Consumerism, aware of that. right. For, yeah, exactly, yeah. for instance. Yeah. Yes. So maybe there will be opportunities for us to collaborate in the future. Certainly. Yeah, we are running out of time, I'm sure. I guess we'll stop here. The two of us in the studio were Silvia Caprilio Panizza and Oli Lagerspitz. Uh, at the University of Pardubice Center of Ethics with the uh, Marie Sklodowska Jury Fellowship. Indeed. And we want to thank uh, Radek Pulsen for uh, the helping us with the technical side of the recording. And uh, we can now just go out and enjoy this beautiful Czech autumn day. Right. Thank, thank you, Oli. Thank you, Sigrid. Thank you for listening. Philosophy Voiced is a production of the Center for Ethics at the University of Pardubice, Czech Republic. 